Greetings to all my Tuesday morning students who typically gather with me at Love of Christ Lutheran. I am recording in my home office this lecture, which is the sixth lecture in the spring quarter. And today we'll begin our journey through the book of the prophet Hosea, which actually begins a journey that allows us to see the light at the end of the tunnel. That is that we can imagine a day that will come when we will finish our journey through the entire Bible. This uh, time frame is usually marked by the time I begin the minor prophets. But more about that in a moment. We have just heard last week, of course, that we are effectively uh, staying at home until at least the middle of May. So I can't imagine a scenario, unless things change very rapidly, where we will effectively be able to gather in the beautiful center of compassion to continue our Tuesday morning sessions until, my hope, the month of August. And in August, I plan to bring my summer series, Moses, uh, A Month with Moses, the Man of God, to you, and then continue on, of course, in the fall quarter as well. We all know that the Center of Compassion offers plenty of opportunity to appropriately a social distance one from another. Uh, and I, again, don't see that coming to bear in the month of May. I'm planning to deliver eight lectures in the month of May. I might do a few more for the St. Teresa class, which needs to finish the book of Revelation uh, online, but no more than eight with you all at Love of Christ, this again being number six. And so if we have a couple of weeks still in lockdown mode, that would leave only maybe one possibility to meet in May, and I don't think that is going to become a reality. So until we see each other again, this is the way we will soldier on. And as we do each week, we'll begin with the word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet and greet one another online to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit, he promised us, to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, as we find our way uh, to the book of the prophet Hosea, you'll find it located just as the book of the prophet Daniel ends. We enter a unique part of the prophetic collection of books. Hosea opens a collection of 12 prophets that have been uh, collected and collectively called the minor prophets. Now, that would be in contradistinction to the major prophets. The major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, are prophets with a written record of their words and activities. We also know there are other very important prophets uh, for whom we have no official written record. Two that come to mind in First and Second Kings, the prophet Elijah, who rides a fiery chariot as he is 
assumed into heaven. And the prophet Elisha, the trainee who takes over the role and mantle of the great prophet Elijah. Why do we call Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel the major prophets? Well, principally, it's because of the length of the prophetic narrative. They're major. They're long. I mean, the prophet Isaiah stretches to 66 chapters. And, and you've dutifully made your way through Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. In fact, we also studied the book of Lamentations. So when we reach the minor prophets, we're basically dealing with texts that are shorter than those of the major prophets. So again, the prophet Hosea stretches out to 14 chapters, followed by the prophet Joel, which stretches out to a brief three. They are no less important, no less significant, and no less prophetic in any aspect whatsoever than the major prophets. It's just that when you put together your synagogue and you acquire scrolls, sacred scrolls of the sacred texts, you can put all 12 of the minor prophets on a single scroll, whereas you can only put, for instance, on a scroll that would stretch out to nearly 30 feet in length, a single copy of the book of the prophet Isaiah. So you purchase scrolls individually uh, to fill the table of contents in the Hebrew Bible that would make up your supply of scrolls available for reading in the synagogue. And therefore, the scroll of the minor prophets is very valuable. It's 12 for the price of one. And as we'll see in a moment, Hosea is a prophet in the exact same time frame as Isaiah. They, they share the same geopolitical world situation at that time. And as I've been dutifully reminding you, each prophet has a basic message to deliver. Typically, it is either, here comes Assyria, or here comes Babylon, or... I told you Assyria was coming, or I told you Babylon was coming. Because Hosea is a contemporary of Isaiah, we know that the prophecy will be directed uh, in the time frame of the rise of Assyria and Assyria's desire to sweep down out of the north, and they will, to take out whole and entire the ten northern tribes that make up the kingdom of Israel. Now, that's evident in Hosea chapter 1 and verses 1 and following. The word of the Lord, this is how the prophecy begins, that came to Hosea, the son of Bari, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, the king of Israel. The year is effectively 701 or so B.C. And we'll pause here and go to the first chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. This is how the book of the prophet Isaiah opens. This is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the king's of Judah. So again, that would mean that Isaiah is an 
active and engaged prophet at the exact same time that Hosea is an active and engaged prophet. And remember, Hosea is going to warn about the appending arrival of the Assyrians, who will sweep down out of the north and in 722-721 B.C. will wipe out the ten northern tribes that make up the kingdom of Israel. Those tribes are lost to history. The opening chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of the prophet Hosea are perhaps the most famous and well-known of the chapters because God is directing the prophet into prophetic activity that when acted out will speak the message that God is trying to convey. Now what we need to know is by this time in history, God through a succession of prophets has already made clear to Israel, the northern kingdom, that they have prostituted themselves. They had committed adultery with other nation, states, kings, and powers in order to secure an alliance that they believed would bring them security against their enemies, and in doing so, involved themselves in pagan ritual, custom, and practice, sacrificial offerings that involved, in some instances, human infant delivery into the fiery bellies of Chemosh and Moloch in order to secure those intergovernmental relationships. They turned their back on the Lord. The Lord was their husband by image here, and they were God's wife, and they committed adultery after adultery after adultery. They played the role of the prostitute. We have to keep that in mind because that's the general image that's going to just jump off the page in just a moment. And if we take it literally, it's a very difficult three chapters to work through. But if we understand it literarily with the imagery that I've just suggested that the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, if you will, had prostituted themselves in building relationships with these foreign civil powers, had committed adultery against God in that relationship of vowed commitment in doing so, then what the prophet is required to do takes on all new and evocative meaning. So, back to Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord that came to Hosea during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Remember, that's the same time period that Isaiah is prophet. And during the reigns of Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, who is, during that time, the king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, verse 2, the Lord said to him, Go find and take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. That is, I have experienced my people engaging in this exact same activity. And you're going to bring this image to their attention. And so, Hosea married a woman, Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to Hosea, Call him 
Jezrael, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezrael, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. You may recall that Jehu was a commissioned man who was anointed by a representative of the prophet Elisha to rid the land of kings and their spawn who had sinned egregiously. And as a result of his faithfulness, a violent response uh, to those who had sinned so egregiously that would include eventually the death of Jezebel at the command of Jehu, his sons then, for a number, succeeded him on the throne. But even though he started out with great hope and was named a king of the northern kingdom, he did, as we all know, what every other king 19 in succession do. That is, they do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And one of the evil acts of Jehu was a massacre at a place called Jezreel that didn't have to happen. So there'll be a punishment meted out through this prophetic imagery. You're going to bear a son named him Jezreel. Gomer, in verse 6, conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And so the Lord said to Hosea, You shall call her Lo-Ruhama, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel that I should at all forgive them. The word Lo in Hebrew, or La in Arabic, is no. So a Hebrew mother telling her child to cease and desist will often waggle a finger at he or she on a bus and say, lo, 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 which means no, no, no. The same woman who's speaking Arabic trying to convey the same sentiment would say, la, la, la. So lo, ruhama, means I am no longer going to be in love with you because of what you've done. So these are images that the prophet is presented to give to the people. Yet I will show love, in verse 7, to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow or sword or battle or by horses and horsemen, but because I am the Lord their God. Remembering when the Assyrians sweep down out of the north, they don't think they're going to be stopped once they take out the northern kingdom. They continue southward and surround the city of Jerusalem, and it's Isaiah in the time of King Ahaz, Isaiah chapter 7, who gives that king the confident assurance that the Assyrians are not to ever even fire a arrow over the wall of Jerusalem. And they don't. They, they flee in terror for some reason. Well, because the Lord inspires them to go back to Assyria. Their king, Sennacherib, then, because he fails once he surrounds Jerusalem to lay siege effectively, is assassinated by his two sons. And so Judah escapes the wrath of the Assyrians. And the hope is, of course, Judah, the sister kingdom, if you will, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the hope is she will learn a lesson from what happened to her older sister. By the way, you remember this was chronicled in the prophecy of Ezekiel, when he spoke of the two sisters. Let me see if I can find that. It's in Ezekiel 
and I'm looking for it now. I hadn't planned to sort of find my way there, but uh, I think it's Ezekiel chapters 30 or so. It's the part of a book of Ezekiel that speaks about the two sisters, one Aloho and the other one Olahivo, and they don't learn one a lesson from the other. And uh, this was chronicled, and I wish I could find it, but because I wasn't prepared in advance, I don't think I'm going to be able to. But trust me, it's there for your reading, and it's quite graphic in its presentation. I'm going to try one more place and see if I might find it here. I'm just flipping through as you can hear the pages turning in my well-worn Bible. Remember, a well-worn Bible is a evidence of a Christian who's not. I found it. It's actually found in Ezekiel chapter 23. I was believing that was Ezekiel 32, but it's Ezekiel chapter 23. And I'll read it to you because I think it's important for you to hear the same kind of imagery. Ezekiel chapter 23. Son of man, Ezekiel, there were two women, daughters of the same mother. They're going to represent the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. They became prostitutes in Egypt. Not literally, but they prostituted themselves with Egyptians, engaging in prostitution from their youth. In that land, their breasts were fondled and their virgin bosoms caressed. The older was named Ohola, and her sister was Holiba. They were mine and gave birth to sons and daughters. And here it is. Ohola is Samaria, representing the northern kingdom, and Holiba is Jerusalem. Now, Ohola, Samaria, representing the northern kingdom, engaged in prostitution while she was still mine. And she lusted after her lovers. Here it is. The Assyrians, warriors, clothed in blue, governors, commanders, all of them handsome young men and mounted horsemen. She gave herself as a prostitute to all the elite of the Assyrians and defiled herself with all the idols of everyone she lusted after. She did not give up the prostitution. She began in Egypt to the south, trying to forge a geopolitical alliance with the Egyptians. When during her youth, she slept with her, men slept with her, and caressed her virgin bosom and poured out their lust upon her. Therefore, I handed her over to her lovers, the Assyrians, for whom she lusted. And they stripped her naked, took away her sons, and her daughters, and killed her with the sword. She became a byword among women, and punishment was afflicted upon her. In Ezekiel 23, verse 11, and here's the key, her sister, Oholiba, remember which is Judah, the southern kingdom, saw this, yet in her lust and prostitution, she was more depraved than her sister. She didn't learn her lesson. She too lusted after the Assyrians, I saw that she too, in verse 13, defiled herself. Both of them went the same way. So this imagery of prostitution, this imagery of adultery, as they relate to trying to build geopolitical alliance with the Egyptians and with the Assyrians, has been addressed before in Ezekiel chapter 23. And it's addressed again in Hosea chapter 1. In Hosea chapter 1 now, returning to verse 8. After Gomer had, re, had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she had another son. 
And the Lord called him Lo-Ami. For that means you are low, not my people, and I am not your God. So you started out as Jezreel, which would be a punishment for an act of overzealousness on the part of an ancestor, Jehu. It then escalated to Lo Ruhamah, which means I'm not attached to you anymore. I'm no longer going to love you. And finally, it devolves into Lo Ami, which means you are no longer my people, or effectively, I don't even recognize you. Yet, in verse 10, I promised that the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will in the future be called the sons of the living God. So, in effect, we'll get through this. The people of Judah, in verse 11, and the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And say then of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved ones. So even though we're going to go through what we're going to go through, the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to devastate and wipe out the ten northern tribes. They're going to attempt to do the same but fail in Judah, but the Babylonians, once they take over Assyria, will complete the job the Assyrians were incapable of doing, and they will take the exiles into Babylon. But God, in the prophetic text, always holds out that hope that there will be an eventual return, and there is, 539 BC, under the direction of Ezra, followed by Nehemiah. So, again, we know the basic storyline. Now, in chapter 2, we have a litany of the reasons why these things are going to happen. A recapitulation. We understand that we've walked faithfully through so much of the Bible. We know the Bible can be repetitive. The idea is in its repetition, it emphasizes the message. And so, in Hosea chapter 2, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. She has committed adultery. She has played the role of the prostitute. Not literally, this is figuratively, in regard to what we'll call the nation-states, the kingdom of Judah, and the kingdom of Israel. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. A prostitute would often be paid with precious perfume that she would wear in a vessel that would dangle between her breasts. It would be evidence of the way that she was uh, reimbursed for services rendered. Otherwise, verse 3, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like the desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will do whatever it takes to get her attention. I will not show my love to her children, because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in shame. She said, again, thinking in the geopolitical terms that the prophet is establishing, I will go, in verse 5, after my lovers, who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. I'll turn my back on God. God's the one who provides for all of those things, but I'm no longer going to trust in him. 
So God says, therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband then, as at first. For then I was better off than now. Hopefully, she'll come to her senses and realize her waywardness has not proved faithful at all or fruitful. And out of that need, she'll return. Now, she has not acknowledged that I was the one, that is God speaking, who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal, meaning in offerings to this pagan god of nature. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens. Verse 9, hail, locusts, enemies stealing it any number of ways, and my new wine when it is ready. Again, when the vintage comes ripe, it has to be picked and it can be collected and taken from you. I will take back my wool and linen intended to cover her nakedness. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers, depending on them for provision. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But she forgot me, declares the Lord. And in this imagery, I am her husband who has been spurned. My patience can only last so long, and I'm trying to do my best to get her attention with trial and tribulation, bringing her back to her senses. And so God says, and this is wonderful, in verse 14, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. Allure her. I'm going to seduce her. I'm going to call her back to me. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her, lead her back into the desert. Remember that time of the wilderness wandering, where for 40 years God could be the one who provided manna on a daily basis and water from the rock, all that you needed to survive. Your clothes never wore out. Your sandals never wore out. You never faced illness. And so a return to the desert is a memory of God's provision on a daily basis. And there, in verse 15, I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor, which is the gateway back into the land of Judah, a door of hope. And there she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. You hear the connection? Up out of Egypt, the Exodus event. And where did they go? Into the desert, where they met God, the base of Mount Sinai, the deserts of Midian in modern-day Saudi Arabia, and then into the promised land, but prevented from entering because of events described in Numbers chapter 12, the negative report of 10 of the 12 spies. For the next 40 years, they wander, but wander provisioned by God on a daily basis until that generation dies out. And so we reach back in the prophecy to that time of the Exodus event where God took the people out of Egypt and all of his provision, water of the Nile, superabundant amounts, and food, grain, 
and vegetables in super abundant amounts ever available, God will provide for all of their needs. So in that day, in verse 16, de declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. And I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that they may lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will take you back into my loving embrace. I will allow you to return to my home where I can care for you. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord, meaning you will acknowledge that I, the Lord, am your rightful husband. And that's the promise of God delivered through the prophet Hosea with this rather graphic imagery. And that day, declares the Lord, <clears throat> verse <clears throat> excuse me, 21, I will respond. I will respond to the skies <clears throat> and they will respond to the earth. The earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the oil, and they will respond to the valley of Jezreel, which means that when I respond to the skies saying they will cloud up and produce rain, they will. They'll respond to the earth by dropping the rain from the heaven, and that will allow grain and new wine and the olive grove to flourish, and that will all happen in the great expansive middle part of the country called the Valley of Jezreel. I will plant her for myself, in verse 23, in the land. I will show my love to the one I once called Lo-Ami, not my loved one. And I will say to those who I once called, not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. But we can't get to that time of blessing the prophet warns, without first the trial and tribulation that's going to be necessary to remove ourselves from this dependence, first upon Egypt and now upon Assyria. The days of destruction loom, and the hope is that in Judah they will learn a lesson from their older sister in Samaria. Now, a brief third chapter will bring us to the end of this lecture this week, uh, because these first three chapters of Hosea are unique in that God is speaking through the prophet. And in chapters four and following, the tone and tenor change. And you will hear that when God then addresses his message in chapters four to the end of the book of the prophecy. But here we are now in chapter three. The Lord said to me, God speaking to the prophet, in chapters 4 uh, to 12, God will speak through the prophet to the people, rather like he does in the book of the prophet Isaiah, for instance. So in chapter 3, the Lord said to me, So now, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Demonstrate your love to her, as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. And raisin cakes were, for some reason, a very valuable commodity that was uh, uh, prepared and 
the kitchen areas and then presented to priests who then presented them uh, on altars to pagan gods. Raisin cakes, sort of a delicacy that would provide instant energy. And as a result of that, they were well known as uh, these items that would be offered as part of that worship experience. So, Hosea, you are going to go, well, figuratively, love your wife, right? The wife who walked out on you, the wife who committed adultery, the wife who prostituted herself as she was your wife, the wife who took payment for services rendered. You're going to forget all of that and take her back into your embrace because that's what God is willing to do with his people. So, the prophet says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about an omer and a leket of barley. The idea is I had to ransom her from her current situation to bring her back into my embrace. And then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will live with you. I was willing, the prophet Hosea, to make myself well, as Jesus would put it, a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Remember in Matthew chapter 19, this is a wonderful section of the Gospel of Matthew. It's unique to the Gospel of Matthew. We only see this teaching here. Jesus spends a long time speaking about the challenges of marriage in the world. And uh, you'll recall in Matthew chapter 19 that uh, large crowds were following Jesus. And in verse 3 of Matthew 19, some Pharisees came up to him with a test, a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, that's a very specific question. The answer to the question, is it allowed by the law of God for a man to divorce his wife, is yes. And is it lawful for a woman to divorce her husband? The answer is yes. Is it encouraged? No. But can it happen? Absolutely. The question, though, is more specific. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every conceivable reason? That is, without question, can a man simply dismiss his wife for any sort of a perceived offense? And the answer to that question, out of the mouth of Jesus, is going to be an emphatic no. He says, haven't you read? At the beginning, Genesis, the Creator, God, made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Will they respond because they're engaged in conversation? Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and then send her away? Again, the law allows for that. That's Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because by the time Moses was leading the Israelites, your hearts were hardened. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, that, that would be the criteria that it would be allowable for, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And if you recall, I was very specific in that understanding of the text from its Greek origins, right? The teaching of Jesus was a little more precise than what I read to you. 
I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, those would be grounds allowable in order to. Now, the Greek word that's translated into our English translation is except, but a better translation and accurate would be the phrase in order to. So I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife in order to marry another woman finds any reason to dismiss her uh, so that he can marry someone more beautiful in his eyes than she commits adultery. Well, this was the position of a large contingent of religious scholars at the time who were following a rabbi of great renown known as Hillel, who had taught that you could divorce your wife for any and all possible reasons. And and when they hear Jesus say that, the disciples respond, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. I mean, if we can't get out of this for any possible reason we could conceive, why even enter into this relationship? Well, the answer is clearly because there's a commandment given to be fruitful and multiply on both sides of the flood. In the original created order, be fruitful and multiply. After the flood, the reboot, the restart, be fruitful and multiply. And you have to do that within the bonds of marriage. But be that as it may, they wonder if it might be better not to marry. And Jesus replies, this is the key in verse 11, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom that has been given. That is, that have ears to hear, that can understand what I'm trying to say. For some are eunuchs unable to procreate, right? That's what a eunuch is unable to do because they were born that way. And that's a hard life to live because if there's a twofold commandment on either side of the flood to be fruitful and multiply and you can't, then you can't fulfill that command. And that's something you have to bear the whole of your lives. Others were made that way by men. There are some taken into exile who are placed in positions of authority in the pagan world's harems. And those men were often submitted or had to be made eunuchs so that they would have no opportunity uh, to advance sexually uh, toward any of the wives of the king. And, of course, that changes the course of your life forever. And still others, now watch this, have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. Or... They've made themselves eunuchs, renounced marriage, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Now, they don't make themselves literally eunuchs, but if their wives decide they would like to divorce them and leave them, they remain as married men available for the return of their wives should their wives come to their senses. So in that way, they've renounced marriage, not renouncing marriage, saying, I don't believe in marriage, but they've made themselves eunuchs because that's the context of the narrative for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So you're born a eunuch, there's shame and ridicule associated with that. You can't be fruitful and multiply. You're made a eunuch by men, well, that's because you've been taken captive. And there's shame associated and distress because you can't be fruitful and multiply. And some men will renounce marriage or make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven in order to be able, like Hosea, to receive their wives back when they come to their senses. And so again, back to Hosea, chapter 3, verse 3. Then I told my wife, you are to live with me many days. 
you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any other man, and I will live with you. For the Israelites, verse 4, will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol, meaning that destructive forces are on the horizon that will, at the hands of the Babylonians, result in the destruction of the temple. With the temple gone, so too the sacrificial system. Afterward, though, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they do, and they will, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in those last days. So those first three chapters, God speaking prophetically to Hosea, a message that he'll deliver to the people. We'll continue next week as we look at chapters 4 and following. But for now, I'm into this for 41 minutes and fast approaching my 45-minute time restraint. I do miss you, and I particularly miss the conversation that I enjoyed that first half hour before class began and the wonderful refreshments and that brownie at the end of class on my way out. But all will be well, and we will return, I hope, sooner than later, and greet one another. Until that time, never forget what a great student you are, and thank you for taking the time to listen to this online lecture today. Good day and God bless.